Okay, good morning and welcome back. Uh, you may notice for people who are watching weekly, um, the talk yesterday on Chongsu uh, didn't appear. Uh, we had a class yesterday, which is uh, July 21, uh, yesterday. Uh, we didn't talk, we just did personal talking in the class. So next week, come back to Chongsu. Today, uh, episode number seven, talking uh, the teachings, life and teachings of Nisargadat Maharaj and his presentation of Advaita Vedanta. Uh, today is Thursday, July 22, almost August, <laughs> moving towards the last uh, quarter, third of the year. Time is going real fast and... Um, I guess we should be thankful, or I'm thankful for that. What I want to do today is um, make a final wrap-up of the discussion from Yoga Vashishta of Valmiki, of the dialogue between uh, Manu, uh, one of the emanations of Brahma, or akin to those at the Council of Saturn level, I'd say, talking to King Ikshaku uh, in uh, a hypothetical dialogue, talking about the nature of um, the source of creation, uh, the nature of creation. And this is some core Vedanta cosmology uh, that fed into Advaita Vedanta and uh, Nisargadot's teachings. And as I said before, it fits with the raw material very well in terms of their, cosmogen their, their teachings of cosmogenesis. It's useful also um, for us when we hear New Age speakers or Advaita Vedanta teachers like Ramana Maharshi or Nisargadat or Nityananda to some degree uh, talking about real unreal uh, and the definition of real is you know a little bit different and and so the the criticizables what could be criticized in typical Vedanta philosophy criticized either by those of Advaita Vedanta or criticized by Buddhists who will say there is no self, or you can't say anything is real or unreal, like Madhyamaka and Nigarjana, talking about neither affirmation nor negation, that reality or or tat, you know, or, or sat, like uh, sat, uh, sat chit, ananda, the awareness of reality, is such, it's tat, it's the only real, reality is the only real, but it's, it, you know, what is the nature of phenomena? What is the nature of mind? Nisargadat talks about that at all, all the time. The nature of um, the self that is to be realized, and then going beyond that, the death of that apparent self. Uh, let me, so let me just uh, finish, read again <laughs> the final shloka, just so you get a sense of this... Uh, basis of later teachings and the way uh, some terms are used. So, Manu replying to King Ikshaku in explaining things to Rama, saying, Shloka, this is uh, from that page, uh, chapter 117 in Yoga Vaishishta. Uh, and there's some strange thing that uh, the dating of Yoga Vashishta is controversial. Uh, some many people put it in, in the common era, in you know the first 500 years uh, A.D. Meanwhile, Valmiki, the author of it, is also considered to be the author of Ramayana, which some people date to several hundred years before, you know, Yeshua, meaning 200, 300 B.C. So there's a lot of controversy about the dating of these uh, documents. 
but the philosophy <laughs> is uh, eternal or ageless and very important. So Manu replies Shloka 10 to uh, 16, or 15. He said, all this that you see, nothing real, and so that's the use of the word real, they are merely phenomenal and insubstantial. They resemble fairy castles in the air and the water in the mirage of sandy deserts. So also anything which is not seen in reality is accounted for, is accounted nothing in existence. So reality is existence and that which is phenomenal and insubstantial is called unreal and no, not real. <clears throat> and that's super criticizable by the Madhyamaka view that to explain sat or tat suchness or absolute truth reality of what is um, I, what is self-other, it's beyond any uh, intellectual designation. I think that's true. Meanwhile, there is some value to recognizing the distinction between that which arose and that which is the source of that which ar arises, passes away, arises, persists, and passes away. So there's phenomenal creation or creation that is phenomenal that uh, appears, per uh, persists, and passes away. And then there's the source of that. There's the sense of self, and then there's the source of it. There's light and its source. And light, like uh, personal identity, like material or even seven-dimensional creation is created, it appears, persists, and passes away. It's phenomenal and insubstantial. It's, it's essentially impermanent. It's inessential. It's, it's insubstantial <clears throat> because it arises, persists, and passes away. And you'll see that in Nisargadat's teaching too. Uh, to call it nothing in reality um, has its, you know, drawbacks. So, Shloka 11, the mind also which lies beyond the six senses is reckoned as nothing in reality. But that which is indestructible is the only thing that is said to exist, is called the Tatsat, the only being in reality, or the only real beingness, Tatsat which is such um, absolute truth. So that's not separate from appearance, <clears throat> but our experience of impermanence uh, is a limited perception, is born of limited perception. So it's, a delus it's an illusory <clears throat> or insubstantial experience because it's due to limited perception, limited seven chakra development. And with perfected seven chakra development and the doors of perception fully cleansed or free of the arising of perception, as a Buddhist would say, then one knows tatsat. And that's called reality. But that tatsat is not separate from the illusion. The illusion, it's an illusory appearance of tatsat. So, 12, all these visible worlds and successive creations are but unsubstantial, insubstantial appearances in the mirror of that real substance, or the real. Thirteen, the inherent powers of Brahma, or we can say Logos, <clears throat> evolve themselves as shining sparks of fire. We can say light, intelligent energy, prana, pneuma, chi, ki. And some of these assume the forms of the luminous worlds, while others appear in the shapes of living souls. So, the uh, so-called substance of what I is, or my body-mind-spirit, this body-mind-spirit, is made of the same light as our planets, stars, galaxies, dimensions themselves, all frequencies of light, like the seven rays. Fourteen. Others, meaning other shining sparks of fire from Brahma, others, again, take many other forms which compose the universe. And there's nothing as bondage or liberation here. 
Accept that. Accept that. Accept the reality of the undecaying Brahma is all in all. The source uh, is not uh, eliminated in its manifestation. It's simply hidden by the phenomenal appearance and its persistence and passing away. That seems to cover, because we don't see its nature. We see its uh, process. So, accept that, or accept other than that there's nothing but undecaying Brahma in it being all in all, nor is there any unity or duality in nature. Right? So, non-duality is fine, but that's not unity. Unity is another uh, experience born of perception. And when perception is unlimited, um, one would experience neither unity nor duality, or one would experience the infinite, boundless nature of all that appears dual, self and object, self and other, as well as uh, a recognition that all the many is one. Uh, both of those experiences fall away when there's complete and perfect enlightenment. Then accept, so there's, nor is there any unity or duality in nature, except the diversity displayed by divine mind from the essence of his own consciousness, samvid. Samvid as very or essentially vid knowledge, infinite intelligence, intelligent infinity. Fifteen final shloka. As it is the same water of the sea, which itself is in the various forms of its waves, the same water appears as the forms of waves and the forms of a current. So does the divine intellect, or Brahma or Logos, display itself in everything. And there's nothing else besides this, right? So everywhere is God. It's all God. It's all Logos. It's true nature. Therefore, leave aside your thoughts of bondage and liberation and rest secure in this belief from the fears of the world. And so knowing um, body, mind, spirit, including our consciousness, right? That's what mind is, consciousness, uh, subjective awareness, is fashioned of the same light uh, as all creation of a one of, of the source, of its source, which is the same for all. That's Ra saying, self is a being of infinite worth. Because the true nature of self, or I, the I, not Scott, the I, um, is of its source. So, okay. And... A word that's important here is um, krama or mahakrama. And this actually, um, it, it's associated with uh, Shaivism and Vaishnavism, Vaishna, uh, the Vishnu and the Shiva worship traditions in India. And so on the Wisdom, li- liber- wisdom uh, Library page, there's some definitions of krama and mahakrama. Uh, as I said before, mahakrama is actually identified as samvit, even though it's really quite a different word. It, the meanings are really quite different, but they're equated. Samvit as uh, samvidya, um, very or truly or essentially vidya, essential knowledge, It really is intelligent infinity and really is the same as sat-chit, which is tat-sat-chit, the awareness that chit, uh, according to Nityananda's reading of chit, or not reading, but knowing and usage, um, sat-chit is samvid, is tat-sat-chit, or awareness of essential reality. It's basically the... uh, infinite nature of all that appears finite. The uh, divinity, the divine nature and boundless um, existence <laughs> prior or true nature, let's just say, because it's even before or separate from existence, non-existence. Uh, the true nature of all 
that appears and disappears being that which is um, of its source or the identical to source. So samvid, mahakrama, defined here as samvid, or awareness reality, itself is a succession, or krama. So krama means succession, and mahakrama means great succession. And uh, it's saying uh, whether, whether it's a process of empirical cognition, meaning thinking things through, or reflective meditation, meaning development of states of awareness, or cosmic emanation, meaning cosmogenesis, it is samvid, awareness reality, that defines and undergoes the process of succession. So, intelligent infinity manifesting as light, or sparks of fire from Brahma, has, uh, undergoes an apparent process of succession, or process, or sequence. You know, uh, from the Big Bang to the creation uh, generation of galaxies and dimensions, and then seven-dimensional beingnesses, and that then uh, on the evolutionary path resolve back uh, from duality through unity back to source. This process of succession also called Mahakrama, and so uh, Maha means great. It actually also means wide striding, as it is, and it's a name of Vishnu. Mahakrama can be named a, a name of Vishnu, and Vishnu, as the middle principle, preserver, um, is akin to creation or existence, so-called existence or creation, being um, that which has not that which has already been born but not yet died, that which has appeared but not yet dissolved. <laughs> Very interesting, actually. And from the entry on Krama from Wisdom Library, from Shaivism, again, Shiva philosophy, uh, there's a final paragraph here called uh, explaining what one Shaiva uh, guru or thinker said. Shemaraja takes the word Krama to stand for the succession of the cyclic consciousness of emanation. So cyclic consciousness of an emanation, sustenance, and withdrawal. So we've got birth, uh, birth, <laughs> old age, sickness, and death, or uh, creation, persistence, and decay. Uh, the succession of the cyclic consciousness or awareness process of emanation, shushti, sustenance, Shtiti, and withdrawal, samhriti. So, emanation, sustenance, and withdrawal. Sounds like um, birth or arising, persisting or old age, you know, continue, you know, aging, uh, sickness, and then death, withdrawal. While explaining the words krama mudra, meaning succession seal or gesture, and mudra krama from the krama sutras. So there are krama sutras, teachings on succession, which again is the succession of mental process, but also the succession of uh, cosmogenesis or creation. He, Shemaraj, also defines the word krama in the context of that system. Of uh, You can say that the apparent succession of creation and personal process is, you know, the dance of Vishnu, or um, an emanation of consciousness, intelligent infinity, in the appearance of finite, uh, temporal, impermanent forms. According to him, it's called krama because, one, it causes emanation and so on to appear in succession, krama, and two, itself constitutes the very nature of that successive appearance. So, uh, God, you know, source is the same as um, impermanent appearance. That's the point. Uh, samsara and nirvana is one. Unity and duality, infinity is one. But by limited perception, limited development, we experience um, the multiplicity of manyness, duality, subject, object, and its resolution is unity, 
and then the, the washing away of all that back to infinite or boundlessness, the deathless, which is source, or sat-chit-ananda, or sat-chit, or tat-sat-chit, or samvid, uh, all that that appears to be duality, multiplicity, then unity, then infinity, that all is one. And so the very nature of succession is its source. So true identity is source. That's the point. The true nature of all apparently phenomenal, insubstantial, impermanent phenomena in succession, that sequence called Krama, Mahakrama, its nature is Brahma. Of course. Hence, Krama is the system that deals with such a phenomenon exclusively, all other aspects remaining subordinate to it. Okay. So, uh, dividing, uh, finishing the divisions, we find all is one, and that one is not the same as some uh, impermanent experience of unity. So ultimately, you know, back to Gautama saying um, cosmology and the nature of the Buddha's awareness or enlightenment, it's inconceivable. So when you get there, you'll know. But for us, um, one should be careful about not getting lost in one's thoughts, <laughs> particularly spiritual thoughts and metaphysical notions. All right, so let's come back to the David Godman reading. Um, well, actually, rather than that, let's let's take it a little bit slower back to that. I want to continue the reading of the quotes directly from Nisargadatta. And this is actually, um, you'll see how this very early um, dialogue teaching, supposedly, of Manu to King Ikshaku, to Rama in Yoga Vashishta, how it very much informs Nisargadatta's perspective uh, and teaching. So I'll go uh, quotes 30 to 39 um, in this read-through. This is not David Godman. This is another site called innerquest.org. Uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj, a great Maharashtrian Yani. And then Maharashtra is where Mumbai or Bombay is. So, uh, teachings 30 to 39 from Nisargadat, number 30. Look at it this way. The mind produces thoughts ceaselessly, even when you do not look at them. When you know what's going on in your mind, you call it consciousness. This is your waking state. Your consciousness shifts from sensation to sensation, from perception to perception, from idea to idea, in endless succession. Krama. Then comes awareness, which is non-dual. Then comes awareness, the direct insight into the whole of consciousness, the totality of the mind. The mind is like a river flowing ceaselessly in the bed of the body, you identify yourself for a moment with some particular ripple and call it, quote, my thought. All you are conscious of is your mind. Awareness is the cognizance of consciousness as a whole. And so this is a very clear teaching on his distinction, the distinction he's making between awareness and consciousness. Consciousness is subjectivism, subjective sentience non-subjective or non-dual uh, consciousness or sentience is called awareness. And this is from either or earlier um, teaching number 26 saying, we use the words aware and conscious and he said, awareness is primordial, it's the original state, beginningless, endless, uncaused, unsupported, without parts, without change. Right? So, source. That's Actually, samvid, intelligent infinity, and that samvid or uh, sat chit or tat sat chit. Consciousness is on contact, a reflection against a surface, a state of duality. There can be no consciousness without awareness. Meaning, when there's this subjectivist, reflective, uh, dualistic 
impermanent, limited form of sentience called consciousness, that there can be that does that cannot exist without the basic awareness that is contracted into it. But he said there can be awareness without consciousness, as in deep sleep, actually, as in complete and perfect enlightenment as well. Awareness is absolute. Consciousness is relative to its content. This is what happens, you know, when you break the eighth fetter, particularly eighth and ninth fetters, that's the ending of what's here called consciousness. And the beginning of, uh, you know, it's the return to unbound awareness or non-dual or trans-subjective awareness. Satchit, samvit. Consciousness is always of something. Consciousness is partial and changeful. Awareness is total, changeless, calm and silent, beyond equanimity, actually. And it's the common matrix of every experience. So awareness, so-called underlying consciousness, meaning when when you get rid of the, the false subjectivity, the doors of perception are cleansed, and the eighth and the ninth fetters are broken, and Ra, just like Ra said, they drop memory and identity, or the Yanni realizes his own death, or one's really finished with a higher self, then uh, one returns to that awareness. And that's why it's considered under, quote, under, or the common matrix, he says, of every experience. Since awareness is in every state of consciousness possible, you know, you could really knock that down intellectually too, but he's really, you know, this is a very fine teaching, despite that. Since awareness is in every state of consciousness possible, the very consciousness of being conscious is already a movement in awareness. It's not a new state. It's at once recognized as the original basic existence, which is life itself, and also love and joy, or the basis of love and joy. Meaning, the consciousness of being conscious is awareness. And that's where you're going to see down the line where he's... um, uh, saying in 30 uh, stanza or shloka 30 uh, then comes awareness the direct insight into the whole of consciousness so by awareness we realize oh I this I this one here um, enjoys and both both enjoys and suffers from subjectivist awareness or called consciousness um, by identification with some kind of reflective process. Basically, the whole achievement, the the establishing of of subjectivity or subject-object dualism, that's the reflectivity. That's actually vibration. You can say it's reflection, but it's eventually known as non-dual. So there's no two things reflecting even. It appears to be reflective uh, because there's a control of vibration. Uh, Vibration... (laughs) is being controlled or limited in a certain way by seven chakra imperfection. He goes on, The mind is like a river, flowing ceaselessly in the bed of your body. You identify yourself for a moment with some particular ripple and call it my thought. All you are conscious of is your mind. Awareness is the cognizance of consciousness as a whole. It's very similar to buddhi, although... What he means by awareness is beyond buddhi, I would imagine. Where Nityananda said buddhi, by by buddhi one can recognize one's own strengths and weaknesses, and also um, the endless, the fecundity of mind itself, meaning mind that continues generating thought, mind that appears to experience reflectivity, me, you, this, that, sensation, perception, thoughts. You see, when he's talking, (laughs) he's saying... um, uh, consciousness, your consciousness, right, subjectivist awareness, shift from sensation to sensation, right, second skanda, from perception to perception, third skanda, from idea to idea, fourth skanda, called sankara, in endless succession. Ho, ho, he's talking about the middle three skandas. How about that? That's right. Our awareness or consciousness or consciousness, subjectivist consciousness, Uh, continually experiences sensations and perceptions and thoughts, ideas, uh, sankara, fabrications, fabrication, uh, fermentations. Right. And so 
<clears throat> uh, it's very common and usually unrecognized that a great mind such as his, um, being very disciplined. I mean, you know, these are not hippies, okay? <laughs> Even uh, Lao Tzu, Zhang Tzu, they're not hippies. They're very disciplined minds. Um, speak in accord with scripture. When it sounds like they're just kind of popping off, they're actually speaking in accord with certain doctrine, like the doctrine of five skandhas, even though that's a Buddhist notion, right? But there's a correspondence between how he's talking about the shifting of consciousness, sensation to sensation, perception to perception, idea to idea, in endless succession of karma, being the middle three skandhas. That's interesting. So that distinction between consciousness and awareness is very important. <laughs> 31. The entire universe, and now you're going to see some differences in semantics with Nityananda also. Nisargadat said, the entire universe, Mahadakash, right? So Mahada or Maha, great, Mahada, Kash, Akash, Mahad, Akash, meaning great Akash. The entire universe, Mahadakash, exists only in consciousness, Chittakash. So he's calling Chittakash consciousness, while Nityananda calls Chittakash um you see, I'm not, I'm not sure if Nityananda would say that Chittakash is the same as Satchit. That's a good point. So it's Chittakash as the sky of mind. Is that uh, non-duality achieved by self-realization, higher self? Or is that eighth density, infinite, intelligent infinity? Anyway, he said, The entire universe, Mahadakash, exists only in consciousness, Chittakash, while I have my stand in the absolute parakash, like gategete paragate, beyond or ultimate akash. In pure being, consciousness arises. In consciousness, the world appears and disappears. All there is, is me. All there is, mine. Before all beginnings and after all endings, I am. All has its being in me in the, quote, I am, that shines in every living being. Uh, yeah, I, I would prefer I is, <laughs> but because it's not a who, it's a what. Um, I can't comment on him not being finished, because I'm not finished. But you can see how different teachers use terms differently. He's sort of saying that the universe of uh, the many... The, the, what appears to be the universe, which is called many things that arise, persist, and pass away in apparent Mahakrama, exists only in consciousness, with meaning the, the subjectivist reflective process by which I say there's that, and there's this, and there's birth, persistence, and passing away. All of that is, is ultimately very much monastic, uh, meaning uh, of... Um, limited uh, of dualizing awareness or dualizing consciousness. And that's why he's calling it exists only in consciousness. But there he's using the word chittakash for um, consciousness, where with Nityananda saying uh, satchit ananda is of the final uh, attainment, that satchit is going to be satchitakash or Chit, the awareness of uh, chit, which is chitakash, the field of chit, boundless awareness, is known at the end. Here he's, uh, Nisargadat seems to be relegating the word chit uh, to a prior, the, the more contracted subjectivist awareness, where he then says, while I have my stand in the absolute, parakash. So, Again, in the other system, the absolute is satchit, <laughs> or tat-satchit. So whatever it is, there is an absolute and there's a relative, and yet it's one. Or what appears to be two is, not, is only appearing to be two because of our limited development. When seven chakra perfection is done, ten fetters broken, seven uh, rays perfected, finished, mind, body, spirit, you know, leaving sixth density, leaving the law of one.
then uh, there's no more experience of any contrast between a many and a one and an infinity. It's all seen as uh, a single um, life that uh, in which the dream is known as the dreamer. The, the dream of creation or the apparent mahakrama of creation is known as the dreamer or the source. The source and its manifestation is no longer considered two. <laughs> it's not even considered one. But uh, all that is is known as its sor- as the one infinite creator or source or intelligent infinity that, that appears as mahakrama. And so that's where he's saying, all there is me, all there is mine, it is I, it is the one I. Before all beginnings and after all endings, I am. But, uh, you know, that it's just... that there, There's a danger, of course, in that. <laughs> of course. It, to say, I am, you know, all, all has its being in me, in the, quote, I am, that shines in every living being. Um, I don't think that intelligent infinity is an I anymore. But it... Uh, but, you know, like Neil Donald Walsh, in a conversation with God, to bring us down to a much lower level, said, uh, there's only one of us here. So yes, there's only one being that is infinite source manifesting as finity and mahakrama succession and subjectivity and reflectivity, reflective awareness, you know, sentience or or consciousness. Uh, That's one life... That is the I, but it's way beyond... It's the same I as you would say. It's the one I. Uh, the one being, the one that, that manifests, you know, uh, uh, in, as infinite uh, Mahakrama and, and creation. Anyway, 32. What begins and ends is mere appearance. The world can be said to appear but not be. The appearance may last very long on some scale of time and be very short on another. Whatever is time-bound is momentary and has no reality. Boom! Right back to Manu in Yoga Vashishta. Bang! Exactly the same usage of the term reality and being. That the world can be said to appear but not be, meaning it has no reality. It isn't. That's called nihilism (laughs) in, in Buddhism. That's called uh, negation from, you know, in Madhyamaka. That would be criticizable by a careful, you know, Buddhist, (laughs) Tibetan or Chinese uh, logician even. So uh, to say, and and that's that's contrasted, that's where uh, Advaita Vedanta and Advaita Vedanta are criticized by uh, Buddhists who... Uh, are influenced by Nagarjuna and Madhyamaka, and even Gautama, even in the beginning, um, talking the indescribability of, of Nibban. You, you really can't put words to it, to say that appearance is not real. Actually, is no more true than saying appearance is not real. It just is, for us, yes, a distinction between appearance and the source of the appearance. So you can say it's mere appearance, but then there's the Buddhist phrase, things are not as they appear, nor are they otherwise. And again, you've got to figure it out yourself. I don't mean any disrespect to him. I think he's a great teacher and a great attained being. Whatever level, I don't know. But um, <clears throat> I don't personally like the, the view that uh, impermanent, insubstantial, temporary appearance has no view that that has no reality. Of course it has a reality. It has an illusory, temporary, insubstantial, time-bound reality that is just like a dream. It's a real, illusory dream. How real is that? What does real mean? Again, it depends on how you define real. If you define real as the indestructible, sure, absolutely. So-called reality or appearance that we perceive and experience as impermanent, mahakrama, successional, sequential, arising, persisting, passing away. Sure, if you say that only the real is indestructible or 
the non-temporal is the only real, then of course the apparently temporal is not real and is not. It has, it but not be. The world said to appear but not be. Um, however, actually, <laughs> to be frank, uh, uh, the illusory has an illusory, has the reality of illusory. And the source has the reality of source. If you define reality as only indestructibility and non-arising or not which is that does not experience Mahakrama, then sure, you'll say that, that creation is a, a big illusion of nothing. But actually, to say nothing is, is to say something. Now I sound like Chongsu. And so, to say there's nothing or it's not real is as unreal or as insubstantial as saying it's totally real and eternal, it seems to me. 33. The consciousness, or consciousness, and the world appear and disappear together. Hence, they're two aspects of the same state. Yes, boom. Um, uh, subjectivity and the apparent world of external phenomena arise together. That's the reflectivity. There's no duality or sense of uh, environment without a sense of separative agency meaning separative selfhood or, or identity, looking at that uh, supposed out, outer environment. 34. The power of life is consciousness. All is consciousness. Uh-oh, now we see a contradictory use. No problem, but <laughs> that's what David Godhead was. Uh, God-man, not David Godhead. <laughs> He's first David God-man, later he'll be David Godhead. Uh, but this is an example of um, contradictory use of terms, where previously consciousness was illusory false subjectivity. Uh, now it's being uh, identified as uh, an ultimate sentience, which is not a problem. It just happens sometimes. <laughs> 34. The power of life is consciousness. All is consciousness. Consciousness itself is the source of everything. Substitute, I'd say, awareness or source. There cannot be life without consciousness, nor consciousness without life. They're both one. In reality, only the ultimate is. The rest is a matter of name and form. As long as you cling to the idea that only what has name and shape exists, the Supreme will appear to you non-existing. When you understand that names and shapes are hollow shells without any content whatsoever, and what is real is nameless and formless, pure energy of life and light of consciousness, you will be at peace, immersed in the deep silence of reality. Reality is something, <laughs> uh, which is um, the basis of succession, but uh, free of any perception of sequence. So here he's using consciousness as he previously used the word awareness. Okay, All is consciousness. Consciousness itself is the source of everything. Well, <laughs> there is a problem using words uh, for opposite purposes. And, um, I mean, I know where he's coming from. He's just, it, I do it too. Everyone does it. Um, people are not super tight in their use of words all the time. But he's, you know, here he's not talking about subjectivist sentience. He's talking about boundless awareness. But you see, to say that boundless awareness is the source of everything is like intelligent infinity. Okay, fine. But it has boundless power available, too. There's omnipotence and boundless power in this source of everything. And he said there can't be life without consciousness or consciousness without life. <laughs> Again, you know, uh, contradictory use of the term. In reality, and here's where, again, the Buddhists criticize and, you know, you can accept it or reject it. In reality, only the ultimate is. Uh, can you not say that everything, that all is reality? There's illusory reality and undying, unborn reality. And the undying, unborn reality takes the form of, of um, Mahakrama, successional, temporal uh, appearance. Temporal appearance, impermanent, arising, persisting, passing away, mahakrama. 
is as real is its true nature is infinity. The nature of apparent finity is finity, and Ra calls that the illusion of limits. So, limits meaning mahakrama, succession, subject-object, reflectivity, arising, persisting, passing away, phenomena, creation, you know, galaxies and octaves, appears, uh, and appears to persist and then pass away. Uh, What is it really? Well, it is not separate from its source, nor are they otherwise. And so it's the illusion of limits whose nature is infinity. The, the intelligent infinity discerned a concept. The concept is finity. That's the basis of the creation of light, or light sparks from Brahma, the uh, concept of finity. So creation is the dream, uh, is an apparently finite, is the dream of infinity uh, in the forms of apparent limit uh, in, in 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 apparently limited finite form that's all <laughs> so uh, as long as you cling to the idea that only what and this is now we drop down to a lower level working on addressing people who are subject to eternalism as long as you cling to the idea that only what has name and shape exists meaning there's no non-physicality there's no uh multi-dimensional formless, formless or non-physical multi-dimensionality. That's the heresy of materialism. So as long as you cling to the idea that only what has name and shape exists, the heresy of materialism, the supreme will appear to you as non-existing. Actually, those people don't even think of a supreme in distinction from name and form. When you understand that names and shapes are hollow shells without any content whatsoever, uh, and what is real is nameless and formless, pure energy of life and light of consciousness, or awareness, you'll be at peace, immersed in deep silence of reality. Reality, what's reality? Well, sat, or tat, or sat-tat, tat-sat. Yeah, okay, tat-sat. And tat-sat is a a non-dual equanimity. Uh, Really knowing tat-sat, I'm not fully there, obviously, but I presume that this immersion in tatsat that is akin to equanimity is a non-dual equanimity. It's non-dual uh, peace and samatha. And um, it's, it's the deathless. It's the great peace of um, freedom from the illusory. But the illusory has a relative, apparently, you know, an insubstantial reality. It's, it's hollow, but I wouldn't say it isn't. It is a dream. <laughs> 35. Samadhi is not making use of one's consciousness. You just leave your mind alone. You want nothing, neither from your body nor from mind. And this is samadhi that indeed comes from mindfulness, right? Uh, Sati, non-grasping attentiveness. Ho ho, that's Scott's definition. Non-grasping attentiveness. Sati. And that's exactly what he's saying. You want nothing, meaning you're not seeking to get from body nor mind. Leave your mind alone. Let it be. Yes, attentive and non-grasping. 36. When you see the world, you see God. Yeah, right? There's only one of us here. There is not seeing God apart from the world. Mm. Beyond the world, to see God is to be God. The light by which you see the world which is the tiny little spark, quote, I am, apparently so small, yet the first and the last in every sort of knowing and loving. And so, see the world, see God. Look around, see the Creator. Ra, the Advaita Vedantist. There's not seeing God apart from the world. Well, there is other worlds, but that's God or Brahma or Logos too. Beyond the world, to see God is to be God. Yes, in higher dimensions, um, we um, enjoy, in positive higher dimensions, <laughs> not for Orion and those fellows, but beyond this world, to see God is to be God, he said. Um, and I think that that is associated with, with the fact that in higher dimensions, without a veil in mind, um, 
there's already a somewhat radical transformation of identity, even though one is not necessarily at uh, Jivatman or um, awareness of I am or, you know, all is I or a higher self, unity. Still, um, there is um, a rapture of joy in living in higher dimensions, positive dimensions. And therefore, we one sees love light everywhere. One sees all is God or all is Logos. And therefore, one can more fully know that as one's identity or as the identity of, of all. And so, okay, 37. The objective universe, Mahadakash, right? Great Akash. The objective universe, Mahadakash, its constant movement, projecting and dissolving innumerable forms. Whenever a form is infused with life, prana, consciousness, tetana, appears by reflection of awareness in matter. So here we have another term for consciousness, tetana, different than chit. It's probably related to the root chit. Chitana also is chitana. Chit and chet and chit and, you know, again... Putting Sanskrit into English is a challenge. And so there's C-H-E-T-A-N-A. There's Chid, C-H-I-D. There's Chitta, C-I-T-T-A. It's all the same root of Chit. Chit, um, basically awareness. And, you know, you can call it consciousness and... People play at both sides, so you can see he uses uh, different words, uses the same word in opposite ways sometimes too. So, the objective universe, Mahadakash, is constant movement, um, Mahakrama, projecting and dissolving innumerable forms, the continual succession of arising, persisting, passing away. Whenever a form is infused with life, how could it not be? Consciousness appears by reflection of awareness in matter. And so subjectivist consciousness is generated by some kind of uh, reflect what appears to be a reflective process. You see, reflective process is also a dream, meaning the formation of subjectivity is 1098, right? Fetters 1098, uh, avidya 10, restlessness 9, and then conceit, tanha, tanha manas, not a eighth fetter subjectivity or conceit, which is I think subjectivity. Um, that occurs because one, um, you know, a being is be- because um, intelligent infinity <laughs> is vibrating, and because of uh, and that's the basic, you, you know, the you can say that the ninth fetter restlessness is vibration is the very vibration of what we're calling light. Uh, and light identifies with his own vibratory nature, and that forms a sense of self. And when light stops <laughs> vibrating and stops identifying with the vibration, then one breaks the fundamental avidya of that um, limited uh, of that identification. I mean, ultimately, the creator or infinity doesn't identify with anything. <laughs> it it is. That's where you go. That's where we go to Tatsat. It is, and so to say, I am is going to be limited, actually. So, but but you can certainly say that consciousness, the subjectivist awareness, appears by what appear what seems to be reflection of awareness in matter. Yeah, right. The matter means light, the light, um, intelligent energy, or love, light, light, love. That's the matter, actually. That's the substance or light as substance that vibrates that whose vibration gives rise naturally to a subjectivist identification or an identification, its own awareness by its vibration establishes a duality of a sense of subject and object. I am the vibrator and all else is the other. (laughs) 38, I am the vibrator. You can uh, quote me on that. I will not become crude. 38. To watch the universe emerging and subsiding in one's heart is a wonder. I'm sure he's had very high 
spiritual, you know, meditative experiences like that. 39. The child is born into your world. Now, were you born into your world? Or did your world appear to you? To be born means to create a world with yourself as center. But do you ever create yourself? Or did anyone create you? Everyone creates a world for himself and lives in it, imprisoned by one's ignorance. Oh, bong, 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 tenth fetter, avidya. There's no apparent, you know, subject, there's no apparent uh, bondage and, and liberation without ignorance. Dropping ignorance, equaling moksha, is the end of any kind of a sense that there's a work to be done to get out of bondage to do moksha. Moksha is the realization that there was no bondage ever existent anyway. <laughs> so, the ending of bondage is the ending of any experience that there is a being that needs to be liberated. He said, all we have to do is to deny reality to our prison. Yeah, well, (laughs) easier said than done. Deny reality to our prison. Um, Actually, you can't do that without breaking ten fetters. Okay? (laughs) You cannot do that without seven chakra perfection. There is no prison. Just like Manu said... Don't, don't talk to me about uh, bondage and, liber- and, and liberation. There is no bondage and liberation. Essentially, they're dreamlike too. The dream of an apparent self, an apparently separative self, in an apparently uh, complex, uh, multiple, uh, you know, complex, uh, differentiated environment of uh, apparent external dimensions of apparently substantial time and space and, and Mahakrama succession, uh, <clears throat> that um, the, moksha, the, the moksha liberation of that being, apparent being in that apparent situation, uh, the moksha leads to the realization that the whole thing was a dream from the start. <laughs> There's never really been a separate of being needing liberation from any real bondage. That's denying reality to our prison. But that, that's a whole lot easier said than done. And don't, you know, I will... <laughs> the reason I'm sitting alone here is that I'll tell you how hard it is. Because we're talking about reincarnation through multiple dimensions. Anybody who, you know, thinks that this is a one-shot situation is completely out to lunch. You think you're going to attain complete and perfect enlightenment right now and finish the seven chakras? I don't think it's easier than I think it is. Maybe it is, but I don't think so. So, that's uh, 30 to 39. All right, and that's 57 minutes. <laughs> well, how about that? Um, I'm going to read just a little because it's really nice, and I guess we'll start. Uh, I'll end here reading a little bit more from David Godman, page 5, and pick up next time, uh, starting from uh, this reminiscence. Rem- Remembering Nisargadat from David. Uh, after he talked about the chemical, <laughs> that some people have very impure and some people have light, not much impure that leads to liberation, which is a different, it's a sort of way of not talking, not, <laughs> not talking about past lives and karma, but it, it just doesn't work and it's very strange that he would even do that, saying that... Uh, a uh, small number of people whose chemical is only slightly impure, they have a chance to get enlightened. Um, that's normally spoken of as karma and associated with past lives, but for some reason he didn't want to go there. Harriet follows up, and this is mid of page five, uh, asks David, so did he think that the people who came to him were, quote, advanced? There must have been a mixture of all kinds of people. They couldn't all have been candidates for liberation. And again, this is, the, this is an amplification of what I'm saying, that there are a lot of people who um, wildly underestimate uh, the path to moksha. Uh, with no, I mean, there are really very few people for whom the, aware, the reality of multiple higher dimensions and reincarnation through higher dimensional existences um, is included in their thinking. Many people, they, they just don't know. They, they can't imagine that they could know. You can know. I'm somewhat. One can know far more than I believe or think I know. So, 
But there are a lot of people who did, they want, the people are in a lot of pain. <laughs> and they think that uh, moksha is the answer. Uh, moksha is the final answer to all pain and dukkha for sure. But actually, um, <laughs> self-understanding and self-love and self-acceptance and deep emotional healing um, would do more than they think. So David says, yes, there was a very eclectic mix of people there, from curiosity seekers to people who travel halfway around the world because they were desperate for liberation and thought that Maharaj could help them. Actually, they need a, a, a loving friend. I sometimes used to sit next to a homeopathic doctor who lived a few streets away. He had no interest in liberation and just saw Maharaj as a good source of entertainment. I'm sure a guru likes to have that guy in the audience. He said, this is the best show in the neighborhood, he told me once. I just come here because I like watching how Maharaj deals with all the people who come. I don't believe a word he says, but he puts on a good show. <laughs> I wouldn't even want to keep that person in my house. He goes on, David goes on. This man, incidentally, told me that Maharaj's language in the original Marathi was occasionally very crude and vulgar. He told me that the translators, who were all respectable middle-class Hindus, were probably too embarrassed to pass on the full force of his vulgarity. At the end of the sessions, he would take me aside on the street outside and take great delight, Mrs. Maharaj or Nisargadat, and take great delight in telling me about all the various, no, no, I'm sorry, it's the translator, telling me about all the various sexual jokes and innuendos that the translators had omitted to tell us. I think the doctor's entertainment, this is the doctor telling him about the translators uh, not properly translating. I think the doctor's entertainment included watching his neighbors squirm as they listened to Maharaj's more outrageous remarks. Maharaj, to some extent, determined the sort of people who were likely to come and stay by setting the agenda on what he was willing to talk about and what he wasn't. He wasn't interested in what he called, quote, kindergarten lessons. That meant he generally refused to talk about many of the tenets of traditional Hinduism, <laughs> the second fetter, ritual worship, karma and reincarnation, common practices such as japa, recitation, and things like that. A large proportion of the foreigners who were there had come because they had read I Am That, Tat Pham Asi. They wanted to talk about liberation, not traditional Hindu practices and traditions, and Maharaj was happy to oblige them. The people who wanted to talk about other things soon left to find somewhere more suitable for their inclinations and interests. Some, though, came with traditional ideas and beliefs and fell under the spell of Maharaj and his radical teachings, but I think these people were in the minority. I remember Mular Patan, a student and translator, telling us one day, I was a traditional Ram Bhakta, meaning Bhakti, Yogi, or um, devotee. When I first arrived here, I thought that if I could have a vision of Ram, I would be sure to join him in Vaikuntha, Ram's heavenly realm. When I died, he's gaming for um, Rupa Loka, rebirth. The first day I came, Maharaj told me that Vaikuntha didn't exist. Ooh, I was very shocked to hear a guru speak like this. But I felt attracted to him and I stayed on. Within a short period of time, I dropped all my ideas about the gods and their heavens. And so you see, you know, does it exist? Does it not exist? It does and it doesn't. <laughs> Duh. It is and it isn't. Duh. It's apparent. It's apparently real and essentially um, empty. Meaning it has an, a, a, a temporal, illusory, dreamlike appearance, uh, apparent reality. Its reality, if we call it a reality, is the reality of a dream or a, night, or a nightmare <laughs> or a fairy castle or a mirage. Yeah. Is the mirage real? Yeah, of course. It's a real mirage. But, but he's trying to get this guy who was super attached to rebirth in a higher dimension uh, to lessen his attachment. So he said it doesn't exist, which is, you know, <laughs> relatively true also. Going on, where are we? I have to get to the... So I'm just going to read next two short paragraphs and that'll close it. David goes on, some of the other local people were very much interested in Maharaj's uncompromising teachings on liberation, but during the time that I was there, the foreigners generally outnumbered the locals by about three to one in the morning question and answer session. 
This could have been because many of the Bombay devotees had to go out to work, but even on weekends and holidays, the foreigners always outnumbered the Indians, who knew what he was saying in Marathi. There was a separate session in the evening that was conducted in Marathi. We were never invited to that because there wasn't enough room for everyone, so I have no idea what went on in those sessions. And so that's where we're going to have to end for today, because I can't keep pushing it to 110. Uh, next time we'll pick up straight from the middle of uh, page 5 in the reminiscences or remembrances of Nisargadat from David Godman. I hope this has been useful. I think it's very interesting material. <laughs> I guess you could call it advanced, but it's just about getting clear on some essential principles and doctrines that lots of people use somewhat carelessly like bondage, liberation, and non-duality, and self, and identity, and consciousness, and awareness. Uh, don't underestimate the path, because seven chakra work is a massive work um, to get finished with the octave. That's the liberation. But uh, for us, <laughs> from uh, elsewhere, it's uh, remembering home and preparing for return. Uh, not, <laughs> not, not, not out of the octave yet, but uh, um, in a much brighter place. So anyway, I hope you're well. I hope it was useful. Uh, please take good care of yourselves in this difficult time on planet Earth, the end times, um, and the eclipses, tribulation pressure continues. Just do your best. That's all we can do. Do your best. I'll do my best. Um, see you again, and good night.